Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So I've, I've heard a word very commonly used, and only recently have I heard it make its way into some of the Christian circles I'm a part of, uh, but that is the word triggered. And uh, the idea of triggering being something someone said or did triggered off this state in my mind or this state of being. So, um, you know, maybe that's my attachment to negative, something negative in my history or background or my culture or something. And so if you say something that triggers me, then um, it is having this negative impact. Uh, when I first heard that, I initially didn't like it, um, but I, I couldn't really quite put words to why. And especially when I was in this, this Christian circle, we were discussing uh, spiritual qualities. You know, particularly in this group, we were talking about Second Peter. And Peter says to practice patience, uh, to practice these other, these other qualities of the faith. And he puts an emphasis that it's pretty important to, pa- to practice them. And there was a, quite a contrast in my mind of what it means to be triggered by something and what it means to practice these qualities. So I couldn't put words to it. I'm curious if you could. Well, I, I don't know. Am I, am I on to something there with, with the word trigger? Is that the right word to use if we're going to correctly state reality? Well, I think you are onto something. I think you've got to find better circles to hang out in. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the. Uh, sorry, you know, for our for the three view- listeners we have, let's clear that up. Uh, let's see. <laughs> well, I'm I'm not sure the uh, necessarily the right word. I think there might be better ways. I too have been. Um, I'm triggered. Let me see. It's probably five, six, eight, ten years ago. I began to read about this. Uh, and I, I was recently uh, reading about this as uh, entered the uh, medical schools now, which I found a little disconcerting. Uh, and really? and uh, so professors are reporting that they're, um, you know, with my professor and the rest, uh, now you can rate them. Um, and there's mm-hmm. quite a number who were finding themselves to be apologetic because they said, now he da da da, and you have a med student saying that triggered something in me that you're using this personal pronoun, this uh, male, uh, gender specific. Um, it's disrespectful of those who are transgender or uncertain of their gender, and um, it, it was it was quite a uh, it was quite a disconcerting article uh, written by someone who is uh, unsympathetic to uh, those who claim all this uh, triggering in this regard, that uh, there are diseases, ailments, and what have you that are gender-specific, and uh, you have mistreatment is uh, already beginning to show up by people who are saying, you know, I am female, and in fact, biologically, they're male. Uh, So the repercussions of this uh, 
and having to do again with uh, triggering, as you, you probably read a couple of weeks ago, that uh, either the, uh, it's either San Francisco or the state uh, board of public education is going to rethink how they teach math because it's been taught under uh, white racist supremacist uh, assumptions. Um, so I'm just curious to see how two plus two equals four. You know, what was the uh, nefarious uh, worldview that was buried in there that triggered uh, negative reactions in people? <laughs> we'll see. But all of this, by the way, <laughs> it just makes me think if you're getting ready to go into the night, if you might want to check where they went to school or when your accountant says, well, I went to, uh, I graduated from a California public school. Say, okay, well, <laughs> taking my business elsewhere because I haven't yet read that uh, the IRS. The trigger. There's probably uh, certainly is a case that um, the human body is set up that uh, certain experiences trigger something in you. And we know, for example, babies are only born with two fears. Are you familiar with them? I'm not. The fear of loud noises and the fear of falling. Those are only two. Uh, by the way, because you, you have some little kiddos, I mean, it's funny, you spin them around, but you pretend like they're going to drop, and you watch their eyes get real big, and their hands go out. And yeah, I was it's just a, picturing yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, so it's a trigger, and uh, which is another rabbit trail we could take our half-dozen listeners to sometime. <laughs> I'm joking, but we we have all of maybe 12 or 14. But uh, <laughs> you could, we could take them down that rabbit trail, because every other fear you have is learned. It's not natural. So uh, God didn't uh, create us to be fearful people. We don't have the capacity for it. So I think in here with triggering, we're seeing something that goes way past our biology, our psychological makeup. Uh, it's, it's kind of blown through the barrier or the structure that God created us with, where there are some natural triggers. And, uh, See, I felt that natural trigger the first time I went on a roller coaster, which might have been the last time I went on a roller coaster. <laughs> but that fear of falling triggered something in me. And it was a white knuckler. <laughs> I really thought the headlines came in my imagination. Young man dies as a brace over, bar over thigh fails, and he sails out into the parking lot. <laughs> so what's going on with triggering? Let me take a guess here. I, I can't help but think that in some way, this goes back to this incredible capacity that God put in us. And I do think it's fair now to use that superlative, incredible capacity called conscience that demarcates us from the animal kingdom. Conscience is supposed to be its most fundamental level, self-awareness, or EQ. So if we had never fallen, we would be self-aware not only of ourselves, but of this mystical, enchanted universe that we live in. We live in a sense of wonder. But first evidence when um, not only Adam names the animals, which is probably great fun, but in, in also having Eve been made from his rib, and the wonder that he expresses. So we're to be people who are to be filled with a sense of wonder, which by the way, the older you get, the harder it is 
to feel a sense of wonder. But what happens in a fallen world is conscience can be corrupted. And a wounded or a defiled conscience is often unnecessarily and unfortunately and to its own detriment triggered in with negative emotions. And I, I can't help but think that a lot of what's happened with triggered is tied up into that because it's largely, it's not entirely irrational. It is rational if you understand human conscience, but we are in a society today that hardly anyone knows anything about the operation of human conscience. But I think that's part of it, Pat. And uh, it, it opens a fascinating um, story that we'll, we'll get to at the end of this podcast. But that would be my take is the wounded or defiled conscience takes on a victim approach to life when it's hurt, when something's triggered, and it seeks to take others emotional hostage yeah that that makes sense uh the the passivity of triggering is is what has stood out to me and i totally see the connection because i'm 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 familiar with what you've talked about with wounded conscience particularly in in the holding others hostage what's the this is actually yeah i think helpful to talk about like we've we've mentioned wounded conscience and when I when I think of someone in bad conscience, I mean, I think the default is just to think of someone doing something that they know is wrong. Um, help me understand, like this is actually maybe helpful to, to grasp. If put me in the shoes of someone with a wounded conscience, yeah, like what yeah. what what is that person thinking, and and what ought they be thinking? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, first of all, listeners, conscience is uh, like a, a lens through which we not only see ourselves, but see our place in the, in this world and so on, so even, even perceive uh, the whole mystical enchanted world that we're in and the universe that we're in, the cosmos, as it's called. But because it's a lens, it can warp. And so if it warps one way, your conscience is inflated. You become arrogant, like we call it a pharisaical or what have you. If it, if it warps the other way, you become very inward and uh, you're preoccupied with yourself. That's a wounded conscience. And then if it, if it uh, bends too far either way, like any lens, it shatters. And in, in scripture, it's called the seared or shattered conscience. It's actually the Greek word cauterized. When you cauterize a vein, you kill it. You stop the flow of blood. As we know in the Bible, the life is in the blood. And so at that point, your conscience has no life anymore. And those are people who can just do wanton slaughter, murder, mayhem, so on and so forth. They're, they're reduced to the level of animals. Set that one aside and you just consider the two warped. So three out of four consciences are big problems. That's why Jiminy Cricket was not right. Let your conscience be your guide, he's saying. And, uh, well, if you have a good conscience, yes. But if you don't, no, no way. That's, that's hell on earth. The arrogant conscience is someone who sees they are the exception to the rule. Now, it generally fits with those who are successful. And nothing fails like success. 
And so we had, and we alluded to it in one of our last podcasts, probably someone who started out as a marvelous apologist for the faith in the 1980s. And by the time he passed away last year, he clearly saw himself as the exception to the rule. He could be deep into porn and affairs and what have you and still feel as he traveled the world, God was using him. To have that kind of lack of dissonance, that kind of detachment from reality, you really have to have an arrogant conscience. Not unlike when Jesus would say to the Pharisees, you know, you're the problem. And uh, they would go, I don't see it. I just don't see it. He goes, exactly right. You're blind. Conscience can blind you. For the wounded conscience, what you're blind to is you're always pinging everywhere you go to see if it's going to be safe or you're going to get hurt because somehow you got hurt from something you did or involved in. Drugs, porn, an affair, cheating, lying, you name it. Um, and you ever you get in the suburbs of that and your radar goes off, you start to get distress signals. You get something triggered in you because this is going to hurt you. And nobody wants to get hurt. And it, it's largely on the uh, unconscious level, Pat, but I think that's what's happening. Yeah, th that's, that's helpful because I think e even after some of our conversations, I think of con conscience as this like one one thing, that inner voice. But but I think it's it's because it's just the wrong it's the wrong way to look at it. The, the lens is the right image. That's how how we see. That's that, right. Yeah. So because we're the wounded and, or an arrogant, uh, when it says that small voice, now you're not hearing that small voice. You're not even aware of that small voice. Yeah. That small voice just saying, you know, Pat's a problem. Don't listen to Pat. Pat's yeah. an idiot. Well, it's it's interesting too because. We we know we know there are t two voices. <laughs> there's there's someone telling you truth and there's someone telling you lies. So I guess the small voice can be deceptive if you think you hear it. Yeah, it just uh, it, to me, by the way, uh, much of what's happening with the trigger, for example, in the um, the whole gender issue, uh, revolves around to which we are as evangelicals complicit in this is. We have for 200 years <clears throat> preached a largely disembodied gospel. By that I mean the fundamental tenet in pre-enlightenment traditions, Eastern Orthodox, you name it, is the word became flesh. So that's fleshed out in the mystical presence of Christ in the Eucharist. It's, a, it's fleshed out in these all these thick liturgies is fleshed out in spiritual bodily disciplines so on and so forth but we sort of abandoned that post and uh, preach a gospel that is largely disembodied now we'll get people to heaven but nature bores a vacuum so if you uh, can't answer the question why you have a body and why we were created male and female, then uh, every, other, every other idea about that is going to come rushing in. And we abandoned that. And you can play it out in your head just this way. If you have a seven-year-old child, who the one word they're going to know to ask is why. So they'll say, hey, mommy, uh, 
Why do you have a body? Because God made it. Why do you make it? Because uh, the Bible says so. Well, why does the Bible say so? Um, hey, mommy, uh, why am I male? Why only two genders? Because <laughs> uh, that's how God made him. Why did he make him that way? Because he did. Because the Bible says so. Well, why does the Bible say that? I don't know. Gosh, that's compelling. Yeah, yeah. So we often think there's the culture, and that is a big, big problem <laughs> in our tradition. Yeah. The culture. Here it comes marching down the street. Boom, 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 boom. Run, flee, protect the kids. Uh, someone mentioned that the other day to me, and I, I uh, said, well, I disagree that in, in the enchanted background, we are porous, porous P-O-R-O-U-S, porous. We're permeable. And there's, you can't protect yourself from this, this stuff. You can't protect yourself. This stuff wafts through us all the time in an embodied faith. What you can do is cultivate wisdom to go, that's not true. Uh, that's a lie. That is true. And you're just calm about it. But triggers are not calm. So... In the Bible, when we read, we know that God is neither male or female, but the male pronoun is most often, almost entirely used, denoting God. So he said, he said, the way we're going, everyone will open a Bible and just be flooded with trigger warnings. <laughs> That's true. Well, so I'm, I'm curious thinking about uh the the path forward in in the sense of you know, I'm I'm always thinking in the background you know, how do I how do I raise my kids well through this and even even in, as a faith community you know there's there's potential opportunity here to uh to to live differently to to be salt and light so yeah, and, yeah. and how I'm thinking about that is uh you know the the answer to a better world uh, moving forward by by many who are fans of this idea of triggering is trigger warnings you know so that's how we that's how we get through this mike we we got <laughs> we put up trigger warnings anytime we may do something that offends someone else and you know that it kind of seems silly but but that's taken pretty seriously um and so that I, I don't think that's the solution um and i don't think that's how you cultivate a a good society so as believers, I think there's opportunity here to cultivate a good society, both in our homes, but even outside as we, as we spill over into culture. So how I do think, we... I think so. Down? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, um, I think the solution uh, won't fit on a bumper sticker. Come on, Mike, you can do it. Oh, I just don't think so, Pat. <laughs> Say that because um, I was... Uh, Reminded the other day, you know, C.S. Lewis, in his little essay, God in the Dock, meaning, you know, God up on the witness stand, said, um, if you're looking for, it's no use if you're looking for a simple religion. Christianity is not simple. And he said, just look at the table that you're sitting at. And he went through really a, a, an Aristotelian view of how what's all that is involved in getting that table in front of you. Uh, that's a longer story for another podcast, but the fact is, he just said, it's not a simple religion. 
true, we're supposed to have simple devotion, but that's different. And so there's a there's a, a level of complexity in this that I think we lose the average Christian. And here's here's two reasons why. So I'll get to the answer in about 30 seconds. First of all, we're we in the Western world, about 95% of the population of the Western world biases the left hemisphere. The left hemisphere is necessary and wonderful, but it tends to think either or simple solutions. The right hemisphere is adept at complexity. So first of all, 95% of the population wouldn't pay much attention to this podcast, first of all, probably because we're not worth paying attention to. <laughs> and second, it's, we just don't offer a simple religion because it's not. But that's that's one problem. Second, it takes someone with a clear conscience to see through idols as being nothing. Now, here's what I mean, Pat. Triggers, trigger warnings are idols. And here's why. Now, by the way, I understand now that we're in the realm of when Christians get really uptight because we don't talk about idols anymore. That's a real old-fashioned world word we want to talk about um, you know tendencies and maybe i have this predilection and maybe i sort of possess things too much maybe i'm sort of a people pleaser maybe i'm sort of a mm -hmm. the problem is god thunders from the heavens you are idol worshipers to which most of us go yeah they sure are <laughs> Go get him, God. <laughs> That's right. Get him, God. Certainly, in the things I own and possess, I am not an idol worshiper. Certainly, I don't idolize my children. Certainly, I don't. Well, let me give you a, a, a good definition of an idol. An idol is anyone or anything to whom you give, you assign that which will give you a sense of well-being. An idol is anyone or anything other than God to whom you look to for a sense of well-being. An idol is anyone or anything other than God to whom you look or have assigned to give you a sense of well-being you know just using well-being there i mean that that that's a totally different bar wow but i uh, from conversations we've talked about you know the first thing that came to mind was oh but come on mike i like my food that gives me a sense of well-being but the, the point is the food ought to point you to god yes everything ought to point us to the higher the higher element of it and so that's 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 how we avoid idolatry, right? Yes. <clears throat> what happens is the, the food has intrinsic value. It's not just utilitarian. So we don't just slop through the food because we're trying to get through it to get to God. But um, it's a both and. And you can see, again, in the right hemisphere, you go, oh, of course, yeah, it's both and. There's a mystery here. 
in the left hemisphere, here we go. I don't get it. Yeah. It's either either it's God or it isn't God. Yeah. Which is it? And then we forget in Ephesians 4, Paul says, Oh no, God is in th- in and all in and through all things. Say what? Yes, it's a mystery. Well-being, you know, it's the Hebrew word shalom, uh, peace, but it does mean um, it's that sense of <sighs> everything's going to be all right. Yeah, and, and well, I like I like your word choice because that the when I initially thought of idolatry, I'm just thinking mm, maybe maybe someone would put value there or uh, even worth um, salvation. These are all like higher lofty things where I can kind of skate under. Well, my well being comes from these other things, but my worth comes from God, or my salvation comes from God. So well being really that notches that up in terms of what can be an idol, which is what I like about how you used it there. Yes. There's a, it's actually, I think it's a pretty funny story when, um, you know, one of the, uh, I can't remember, I know good with Bible trivia, but the, one of the, one of these uh, pagan nations and they took the Ark of the Covenant and uh, stole it. And, you know, they wake up in the morning and their idol has been knocked over. And the first thing you do is get that idol put back up. See, that's a trigger warning. A trigger warning is uh, you just had one of your idols knocked over. And the last thing we want to ever see is our, our idol knocked down. So we rush to pick it back up. Of course, it keeps getting knocked down. <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny story. But, but you, you, did you, and so it could be uh, someone, uh, uh, maybe they ask questions about the way you raise children. Trigger warning. You judgmental little, don't touch my children. Uh, that means your children are probably an idol. Because you've assigned to them what, what should be God's place to give you ultimately a sense of well-being. They're going to turn out well. They're going to go to the right schools. They're going to get the right job. They're going to blah, 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 blah. It's all going to be neatly lined up. We're going to have 12 children and line them up like bowling pins. Or it could be, I don't have any idols, but I'm finally set. Now we're set for life. I finally got my barns filled with everything I need. I can sit back and relax. You fool. You do not know that tonight your life is required of you and you are not prepared. I didn't say that, by the way. Jesus did. Trigger warnings can be beneficial if we have a clear conscience to go, I'm being pinged on something that I have made an idol. Maybe you're a pastor and someone comes along and says, are you really sure that that sermon was reflects the gospel? Or as one of my friends puts it, he says, most sermons are adventures and missing the point. <laughs> and uh, but if that triggers and you know the first thing I do no no I mean here's what blah, blah. that's an idol you said that's untouchable you don't knock that over I was with a, a group the other day the other morning and we were discussing how 
a whole lot of worship music written in the last 50, 60 years. And the way that it is amplified actually mars the conscience. And it's because uh, older traditions understood, first of all, the power of music is it can transcend rationality. If you don't believe that, just go to a rock concert, um, mosh pits, things like that. <laughs> but uh, not that I've done that recently. Oh, come on, Mike. Um, yeah, okay, last week. Uh, but uh, so in the end, you can start exuberantly saying things that really aren't true of you. It's, it's a lot like being a wedding reception in the third hour. I love you, man. You're my best friend, man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, <laughs> alcohol loosens the tongue, but so can worship music. And what happens is you corrode the conscience because you're saying things about yourself. You're telling God supposedly things about yourself that simply aren't true. I love you, Lord, all my heart, all my heart. So a lot of the praise music of the last 50, 60 years uses a lot more over-the-top language. And But again, it's back to this complexity. It's the idea of people go, yeah, but their heart's right. And what I, well, heart is conscience in the Bible. And how do you know that? Then second, God created by wise words. Combine the Genesis account with what's recorded in the in the wisdom literature, and you see it wasn't just words, it was wise words. Wise words do not go beyond what is true, but they don't go less than what is true. And a lot of our worship, I think, is just simply not wise anymore because we're saying exuberant things that in fact aren't true. So what happens is you corrode your conscience. Now, by the way, you corrode that generally toward an arrogant conscience. What we're, and then the arrogant conscience, by the way, is rarely triggered. That is a problem right there. The only time it's triggered is, how dare you question my blah, 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 Mike? Who are you? That's arrogance. That you can't have even a jackass come up and talk to you. Now, that happened both in the Bible, and that's what I've been calling in the past. So, see, you got it going today, too. You got modern day jackasses. Sometimes they're people like me. But well, a wounded conscience is different. That's the one that sits there and hears a prop say, he or she, boing, because your sense of well being is being threatened. So, as an example of the arrogant conscience, if, if I have an arrogant conscience and something is said that would normally trigger me, is it reflective of my arrogant conscience that I'm thinking, oh, that's, I'm sure that could trigger some people, but that's totally beneath me. That's only for the, the weaker. That's right. Where that's I, right. I think I'm in a good spot, but what I don't realize is I'm completely demeaning others in that thought process. That's right. The arrogant conscience thinks you're the exception to the rule. So it might be that someone says, uh, well, the, f the fact that, um, that if the statistics are anywhere close to the truth, if you're going to have a steady diet of pornography and feel like God's using you, you've, you've got to have an arrogant conscience to think that somehow you're the exception to the rule. Hmm. I don't know how you put that together. And the arrogant conscience just doesn't get triggered. The only thing that gets triggered is, again, with the Pharisees are, who the hell are you to question us, Jesus? 
look at what we're doing. Look at what we have built here. Look at the size of our church. Who are you? The arrogant, uh, but, the, but there's actually a lot of evidence with the therapeutic gospel path that we've talked about in the past. And Christian Smith's excellent phrase of the gospel primarily today in America is moralistic, therapeutic deism. That God wants me to be happy. Like God certainly wants you to be happy, but I don't think that's the end all here. So what happens is that that cultivates this wounded or defiled conscience. And it's pretty much cultural. It's right across the boards. So that someone says something, and that's a trigger warning. But the problem is them. And you have to put them in a place where they are the oppressor. Or they are the supremacist. And the only way through this is to see it as idolatry. Hmm. Idols tend to want to wave a flag that if we all felt this way, we'll all come together. They are all sort of like the original Tower of Babel. And so here's a solution. And it was given to me by a friend whom I respect a great deal. Because friends have asked him, how can he be a priest in the Episcopal Church? Isn't that the gay church? Because he's evangelical. To which he says, he gave, he told me the story of Neymar, who, if you go back in 2 Kings 5, is a servant to the king the Syrian king, a paganized sort of a Babylonian culture full of idols. And he is the one who assists the uh, ruler, uh, especially when he worships. But one day, uh, this uh, Neymar uh, comes down apparently terminally ill. And his uh, servant, Neymar's servant, says to him, well, I hear there's a lot of healing going on down in Israel. Why don't you go down there? Of course, uh, Neymar, being a Syrian, big, big, like it's like New York City, and Israel would be like Peoria, Illinois. Uh, <laughs> what good is Peoria? And, you know, I love this sermon. He goes, what do you got to lose? <laughs> you get off your high horse. And uh, so he goes, he goes down, he goes to the king of Israel. Of course, the king of Israel suspects this is some kind of a plot. So he says, I can't help you. <laughs> Uh, I guess I've heard some of the, some of the thing. Go see Elijah. And uh, by the way, viewers, I might have it mixed up, Elijah or Elisha. So just bear with me, all right? <laughs> Give me a break here. Um, so he does. And Elisha says to him, uh, yes, go dip yourself in the River Jordan seven times. Now, the River Jordan is often just a trickling stream. It can be a muddy little thing. And so you can imagine, Neymar looks and goes, you got to be kidding. I mean, we have got beautiful lakes where we are. And again, the sermon goes, what do you got to lose for crying out loud? Get off your high horse. So he does. He goes and dips himself seven times, comes out. He's healed. So he wants to pay Elijah. And Elijah says, you can't do that. I don't, I don't take payment. And he goes, well, I want to take some soil, put it in this uh, crop that I have and take it back to me to remember this. To worship on this land and he said but i also have a problem because he he feels this is the one true god and he says uh, the problem is i serve the king 
And the king of Syria worships these idols. And I help him to bow. We hold his arms. and So I bow with him. And here's what the key in this whole story. Elisha says, go in shalom, peace, well-being. What was he saying, Pat? I'm not sure. <laughs> yes, I understand. What he's saying is what Paul told the Corinthian church and what's repeated throughout scripture. An idol is nothing. When you have clear conscience, you can see he's bowing down to nothing. You can bow down with him. Because just like what happened in the Babylonian exile, when the sons of Judah served Nebuchadnezzar, who worshipped idols, they recognized the idol is nothing. It doesn't trigger anything in us. You can help him bow down because he might come to his senses, which, by the way, he did. My friend said, yes, we do same-sex marriages. No, I don't, but our tradition does. And I operate according to those protocols because of the thick liturgies and the history in this tradition. And I am praying that this tradition comes to its senses, becomes of good conscience. I don't know if that'll happen, but the fact is this tradition is simply bowing to an idol that is nothing. I can go and offer shalom, seek its well-being, seek its flourishing. Pat, I have no doubt that the average evangelical will hear that and be mystified. Why? I'll toss out this to you. The average evangelical I know doesn't believe they have any idols. Mm. Mm. That's well, that's funny you say that. I just want to take a minute and let that sit too. Hang on. Wow. My my first image <laughs> comically, the image I had was I'm sure you're familiar with Veggie Tales, but of course, it's the story of bowing down to the big golden bunny, <laughs> King Nebuchadnezzar, right? And forcing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow down. They don't, so they get thrown in the furnace. And and so my my question to you is, like, I think that's typically the story that evangelicals would jump to is don't bow down to the idol. But you nailed it there because the assumption there is that I'm not bowing down to any idols myself. Which that's is, right. That's wow. And see, I, it's different. Yeah. Neymar, for example, that's part of his function. It's just part of seeking the flourishing of the city that you. And so, for my friend in this tradition, that's part of the protocols. Like, if you are elected U.S. senator, there are protocols you follow. Whether or not you agree with them is not the point. And if you feel like right now politics is corrupted, well, to get to be at a place where you can be a redemptive voice and seek the flourishing of the United States, for example, 
you are part of these things that sometimes bow down, you recognize that they're bowing down and nothing. Because you're part of the function. Yeah, I'm part of the function. That makes and sense. You, and so I can't be... Uh, I can't be seeking the flourishing of Annapolis. And and then last month, as the mayor spends an inordinate amount of money on gay pride flags everywhere, that I flee for the, the hillsides for the next month. Because you have to see through that flag to see it's nothing. Just as in the same way, in our didactic, rationalist, disembodied gospel, and we bow down to that, if we saw how much we bow down to the Enlightenment, honestly saw it in clear conscience, see, that's a bowing down that we're willfully doing. The other is a part of just simply you're in a system you can't find a perfect system. If you want to change the world, you might have to, for example, you say, okay, I'm going to teach you Columbia. I'm going to teach you Columbia, and we mandated every fifth word must be inclusion, and every fourth word must be diversity. That's a joke. <laughs> and, you, and you say, okay, I go with that. Someone says, you idol worshiper. No. The idol is nothing. You really, they really think that we're going to make the world better and pull everyone together under the banner of inclusion and diversity. When in fact the Bible talks about those two, but not in the way that we talk about it now. We've made it an idol. If we became more familiar with the idols in our faith tradition. A good start, if someone's curious, there's a book written many years ago by a man with, I often say, with an unfortunate last name, <laughs> but then uh, he's going to kill me for saying that, uh, Herbert Schlossberg, but the book's called Idols for Destruction. And his point, he quotes, it's taken from Hosea 8.4, where God said to the nation of Israel, you have made idols for your own destruction. And he, I think the book does a very good job in enumerating the idols, all of which are in our faith tradition. Now, that's an idol you can do something about. I can't do anything about some of the other idols that Neymar couldn't. But if you're of good conscience, you will say, that idol's nothing. I'm there to bring shalom to this city or to this faith tradition. And that, by the way, Pat, what that allows for is someone can, I believe, say, I can't in good conscience go there. Fine. I understand that. That can happen. That could be the case. But others can say, I in good conscience can in the evangelical tradition those who bias the left hemisphere tend to think it's either or. For example, you can't be evangelical and be Catholic because they venerate Mary, period. Or they pray to saints, period. So that, that's just wrong. They idolize them. I don't think they do, but you can see how it, break, it goes that way. And then someone says, well, 
I'm an Episcopal priest. You can't, you can't be that. Um, and on and on it goes. So in the end, all the idols are quote out there, right. quote in here, we don't have any. And I would beg to differ. <laughs>